Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. Look, you know that Juliet and I are big fans of nutritional support. There's no substitute for being in the sun, exercising, eating plants and animals, comma. Plus, we take we add some collagen and things like creatine. We're big fans of taking a couple of magnesium before we go to sleep at night. So guess what Momentus just did? They just partnered up with what I think is one of the greatest brains around right now, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who happens to be one of our good friends and is sort of a nerd. He's like a deep science nerd. You may know him from the Huberman Lab podcast, but he's also a Stanford neuroscientist and he knows a lot about what he's talking about. Yeah, and specifically knows about this sort of the getting through the supplement world beyond gimmick and into what actually works and what is supported by the evidence. And Dr. Huberman has collaborated with Momentus to develop a suite of supplements that optimize health in the areas of sleep, focus, physical performance, hormone support, and longevity. I am thrilled for this collaboration between Momentus and Dr. Andrew Huberman. If you want to learn more, where do we go, Jay? We go to thereadystate.com slash momentous and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, I am thrilled to introduce you to one of my greatest coaching allies, someone I've been working with for over a decade, Yami Tikkanen. And the reason I mention that and so sort of effusively is I think Yami is one of the most underrated coaches on the planet. I also think he's one of the greatest tactical, psycho-emotional, spiritual coaches I have ever met in any sport and any discipline. He's the founder and the head coach of The Training Plan, which is an online program for CrossFit athletes or athletes in that space. And his mission is to teach athletes to train with a purpose, and really to overcome their obstacles and reach their potential. What's incredible about Yami, it was not only was he on the Finnish national judo team as a young man, he went on to like live in Paris and just nab a degree in traditional Chinese medicine. Then he became an osteopath. He's an applied fellow at the Functional Science for the Gray Institute, Z Health Master Coach. He's been coaching CrossFit coaches forever. He's really started this thing in 2010 uh, when he coached Annie Torrey's daughter. 
He coaches Bjorn Goodmanson. He's coaching Katrin David's daughter out of CrossFit Reykjavik. It's pretty amazing what they've got going on right there. I'm excited for you to hear this conversation because hopefully you'll start a deep dive onto the Yami nerddom and appreciate that he is one of the greatest people in my life and one of the most incredible coaches on the planet. Please enjoy this conversation. Hey, Ready State listeners. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Hey, Yami, how are you? Welcome to the Ready State podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So I'm just going to get right into it. And we have a lot of questions for you since we've known you for a really long time. And in full disclosure, we're friends. But I recently read in the last maybe eight months that you are the winningest coach in CrossFit Games history. Do I have that data correct? And what is your secret? Interesting. I cannot not deny nor confirm these accusations. <laughs> I, <laughs> this might be true. This might be true. I think it depends how you count. Like, do you count just the individuals, teams? How do you do the math? But we've certainly had plenty of success throughout the years. And if I want to answer that long, kind of the lo take the long answer and make it short, I think it's all about creating trust with the athletes and having long-term relationships where both me as a coach, I can grow and they can grow as athletes. There's mutual respect that we can build on. I think that's really the secret. So I think you mentioned the word long-term relationship, which is another thing I wanted to ask you about right away, because what you see, not just in CrossFit, but also across all professional sports is if an athlete isn't successful or a team isn't successful, often the first thing to happen is the coach gets canned when I think most coaches know, chances are it's not really their fault that an athlete is or isn't successful. Ultimately- I'm not sure we should even use the word fault. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's easy to point at your coach. Yeah, it's easy to point at your coach and-, and um, it seems to me that a lot of athletes and teams do maybe a bit too much changing and not sort of doubling down on those long-term relationships like you mentioned. So tell me a little bit about that. And, you know, subtext there, of course, you've been obviously working with Annie for many, many years, that being your most long-term coaching relationship. And yeah, Annie was like five years old when you started and coaching. And obviously Annie. it's been yeah. very fruitful, right? She's been able to have this insane long career. But anyway, if you could just talk about like, you know, again, just sort of more about the value of this like long-term coaching relationship and then maybe just tell us a little bit about your epic coaching relationship with Annie. Yeah, I think in some ways I would say like to be successful, you have to be lucky. And I think that my luck was that I found Annie in 2010 in a stage where she was like a, a diamond, but still very raw. You know, she had this incredible talent, this incredible ability to put in work and to understand movement, but she hadn't had the coaching yet. So I came in the game exactly at the right time. And then we had success immediately. You know, she was second on 2010. Then we had two first place finishes before she had the back injury. And then she came back and finished second. So we built the proof very early on. So it was obvious in some ways that the relationship worked. We would find a way to make things work for her and help her grow as an athlete each year. It could have gone the other way and we could have had a couple of rough years and maybe the relationship could have gone completely differently. You know, it would be much more difficult to build the trust. But we had this early success, hopefully because we did the right things and didn't just get lucky. But I think that really, that really helped. And I think it's true that once you have that credibility, you've done some work with an athlete who was successful, then you, they can lend that credibility to you when you work with other athletes until you form that relationship. Again, so I think that's been a really important, like my, my lucky strike was that I found Annie at the right time and we had the early success. So it was easy to build trust on that. Clearly then it couldn't have just been my fault if all of a sudden we stopped having success. 
But I think that being said, I think it absolutely is. It's easy. Let me to, ask you this. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, and I'm just going to man crush on you for a second because we've worked together. We spent a lot of time together. I feel like you are one of the top coaches I have ever met on the planet. Let me just say that again. I'm, I know a lot of coaches, but I think you are one of the best total coaches. And you spend a lot of time thinking about this relationship of culture and personal development. It's sort of a hallmark of your program and this long-term relationship. Because I ask a lot of coaches, have you ever coached someone and been responsible for their development as a human who also is happens to do athletics for 10 years? And very few coaches can actually say, I've coached someone for 10 years. And you've now coached someone who has been really good and is continuing to be really good for over a decade. How did you come to recognize that component? Because I have some insight into maybe why those things are important to you. But how did you come to reconcile that this interpersonal relationship trust piece was such a seminal or such a keystone element of, of any successful program? I think. Part of it might have been my background in martial arts, and there was always this idea with, with martial arts that there is a growth as a human and there's a growth as a martial artist or an athlete in those sports. And I think it felt always important to me from a very young age. So then when I found CrossFit and I found coaching in CrossFit, I think it just felt intuitive that if I want someone to be a successful athlete, they can't be a successful athlete in isolation and be a desolate human. They have to be also a successful human. They have to grow as a human being. And those thing, two things were never really separate to me. So I think it's something that was embedded to me very early on from the martial arts culture. And then I just carried it into CrossFit. And of course, I mean, I could see the results if that relationship wasn't there or if, if it wasn't built and what could be done if it was there. So there was also this like real life evidence that was building up on that. I don't think people understand that or even know that you were on the Finnish national judo team. Do you think it, it was a crucial and component to your ability to coach and be in a coach of athletes having been and received high-level coaching yourself? Yeah, I think both like from the ability to understand what the athlete is going through, like how tough it can be to do all the work and do all the things you need to do outside training to be successful. And then also knowing what worked for me. I, I had a, I really respect my judo coach that I had for many years and he actually never this was like a thing that stuck with me very early on. He never agreed to coach me. I mean, he trained me for over 10 years, but he never agreed to be in a coach-athlete relationship because he had only worked with two people like that in the past. So for me, from the beginning, that relationship between an athlete and coach became something very sacred. So if I say, okay, we work together, I coach you, then we are walking this path together and the commitment runs very deep. You know, if you call me at two o'clock in the morning, I'm going to be ready for the athletes that I coach. But if I just train you, that relationship is different. So I know in this, uh, just continuing on about your long and awesome coaching relationship with Annie, we had her on the podcast this past year and she talked to us about her, some of her challenges, becoming a new mom and sort of like, you know, getting back into training. And then obviously she had this amazing success last summer at the CrossFit Games. But tell me a little bit about what it's been like for you on the coaching side to go from coaching a single woman to all of a sudden a mom and how that's been different. Yeah, that's been very different. And, and thankfully, we've been able to also rely on experts like Stacey Sims, who I think you spoke with recently, and she's, you know, very good thinker around this space. So, but, you know, it, it was like a learning experience from collaboration perspective and trying to understand female physiology deeper than I did before and learning how to respect Again, the human, the mother, in and the, you know, the the pregnant woman becoming mother, learning to respect that as a priority, 
and never pushing the athletic side too far, but still being cognizant of the goals that we had for her to come back after this and be successful. Last season for us was, I mean, it was the hardest season we've ever had. Like she might have said this, but we had to modify almost every single training session in one way or the other. But we also felt at the end of the season that every training session was productive. So it was basically just like duct tape and chewing gum for five, six months of trying to keep the boat just going in the right direction. And then at the end, when it all came together, it was also the most rewarding coaching year of my life for sure. And tell me a little bit more about what does that mean to modify? Like, are you modifying the volume or the time? Or was it modifying just because, you know, she's now managing having a baby and a schedule with a baby or just, you know, elaborate a little bit more about Yeah, that. I mean, I think two things. One is obviously time management and just understanding that the baby has to be a priority, but then being able to build a structure around that training-wise that's still supportive of the athletic goal. So that was like this time management problem for sure to be solved. But I think also just from a movement perspective, you know, respecting the changes in her body. She had a very difficult birth. She lost a lot of blood. It takes time to build back that blood volume. So we had to take that into account as we planned her conditioning sessions and endurance sessions. How can we increase that blood volume as quickly as possible? What can we do to support that with food and supplements, etc.? But then on top of that, things like, you know, just diastasis recti and just dealing with what happened to her abdominals during the pregnancy and what happened to her pelvic floor during pregnancy and knowing that we one need to strengthen those areas and improve the coordination but also we need to respect it with movements that we do with the movement selection and never do a workout just because oh i happened to ride it or just because it would could be the workout like we could do that workout but if it's not good for her, her body we would never choose to do that workout because ultimately we're trying to make her to be the best version of herself, we can't impose, like it's kind of like athlete-centric training essentially, right? Like you, you take the athlete and you modify things around the athlete and their goals and their purpose instead of saying, here's a program and you have to mold yourself into that because it, it doesn't work anyway so well, but it does definitely does not work when you've just given birth or you're pregnant because things change so quickly and having a for her having a first baby as well, it's obviously everything is new, you know? So there's a lot of emotions that go with that too and those need to be respected. So there is like this logistics side of things. There's this physiology, there is anatomy, and then there's this emotional aspect that they all had to be managed each time. So it, it was definitely a lot. You, well, I just you, I want to make one comment really fast. It's really cool to hear you as a mom and an athlete. It's really cool to hear you talk about this and just be so comfortable with all the language, right? Because I think it's newer, I think, for coaches to just be able to like speak as candidly about the challenges and, you know, even just say pelvic floor. <laughs> And things like that. It's pretty yeah. awesome. Well, what I was what I was gonna say is it's interesting is that Yami really cut his teeth working and coaching women first. Yeah. So you have a perspective where you're seeing inputs and outputs that may not have traditionally fit with a male physiology or a man's physiology. So were you aware, because you've been coaching women so long, of sort of subtle differences between what you feel like the kinds of volume, the kinds of training, the kinds of sort of total support that women required differently than even nutritionally or hormonally that women had the response exercise than men. Has that been part of your programming early on? Yeah. I, I think it has been something where I, I did not start with that knowledge apart from what I learned studying osteopathy at school, the basics. But the application wasn't there. And then throughout the years, just seeing the differences between the male and the female athletes, recognizing the fact pretty early on that things were different, like not just Annie, but female athletes tend to be able to handle volume a little bit better at our higher percentages. If we talk about weightlifting, they just, they can, they can do 
a little bit more work than men in many aspects, and they need to do maybe a little bit more work to make the same progress. So those kind of little recognitions came early on, and then it started to be more like understanding that different times in the cycle, you might feel stronger, you might be, feel more tired. What's appropriate training? What's the best training that we could do right now to take advantage of the superpower physiology that women have? Sometimes it might feel like, okay, there's a downside to having this menstrual cycle, and that's true, but if you understand the cycle, there's always something that you could be doing that would be the most productive thing to do at that time. And that knowledge came later on in the last few years, it has really, really grown. And I think Annie's pregnancy was a big push also for me to realize that I have to understand this better if we want to get her to come back as good as we expected. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I want to wait to talk about this, but you're obviously coaching a whole team of women out and I want to get to that later, but I'm sure all of these learnings that you're having around Annie and training a new mom and all the sort of additional stuff you're learning is going to obviously pay dividends in coaching other women. So it's cool. So I, I just want to, uh, on this coaching thing, um, this is one of my favorite stories. So I don't want to tell the story. I want you to tell the story, but you're obviously from Finland. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing a lot of coaching, but often to more like American style audiences. And in part of your coaching journey, I remember that that you told me that you actually either took classes or did specific coaching on how to speak to a more American, speak and interact with a more, a more American style audience. So can you tell a little bit about that? Because it's always one and of And let my me just tee this up. Is that this is the level of detail that Yami is <laughs> yes. obsessed with. Yeah. How do I communicate? How do I be a better human to human Yeah. And then, coach. you know, maybe as part of that, you can talk a little bit about your background as a Finn. <laughs> yes. So I realized that if I speak like this every time when I deliver instructions to the athletes, that sometimes I don't get so many successes. So I realized, obviously, at some point, <laughs> at some point, like, why are you why are you laughing out loud as a Finn? I just heard that. I heard I heard that was the most yeah. expressive Finnish I've ever heard. And this is why they kicked me out. This is the story. They kicked me out of Finland because I started to be too expressive. <laughs> now I would do this. Actually, I remember reading this book. <laughs> I remember reading this book many years ago that actually talked about this exercise. That if you uh, take a pen or pencil and you put it between your teeth, you kind of get this creepy smile going. And those facial expressions, like Paul Ekman's work, et cetera, those facial expressions can actually lead to emotions. And as a Finnish person, you know, you don't have many emotions or they are very under the surface. You know, they, you, don't, you don't know, they're buried somewhere deep. So, you know, I would, when I was teaching seminars, teaching the, the M-word seminar back in the day and the level ones for CrossFit level twos. And, and before I would speak to an audience, I would just, you know, in the morning, I'd go in front of a mirror and just go like five minutes just to feel happy, you know? So I would do these kind of things. And then I would also practice my, uh, <laughs> try to have a little bit more intonation in my voice. I mean, I don't know. How am I doing? It's, it's getting better, but it's like, it feels like a lifelong journey, you know, as a Finnish person. You're basically from California now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I, it sounds great. And there's Not a lot of intonation and yeah. even some of your sentences that, <laughs> even some of your sentences that aren't a question end with like an uptone, you know? <laughs> so you're doing an amazing job. And every time I talk to you, I always think about that, especially too, when I see you with like a massive grin on your face. I'm always like, that's a learned skill. Yeah. So check this out. You were a high level athlete. Then you didn't go to osteopathy school. You, you didn't become an osteopath. There was a, a thing you did in France. What was that thing? So I went, I had studied French in school for a long time and I was extremely frustrated that I couldn't speak French despite getting good grades. So I actually went to work at Euro Disney in Paris. I was not Mickey. But I was working in Disney and I had always been excited about Chinese martial arts, but I didn't have a chance to do those in, in Finland. 
And I found this school with uh, Sifu Didier Bedar, who was a student of William Chung, who was the training partner of uh, Bruce Lee. So this was very exciting for me. And I, I joined this martial arts school. And then through that martial arts school, I found out that there was an opportunity to study Chinese medicine. So I did a three-year degree in Chinese medicine in, in Paris, which is kind of a confusing combination of things. Then, fast forward, you end up as a young, talented osteopath. How do you then sort of integrate all of these skills? Because again, I'll say you're one of the best coaches I know with an incredible track record, continuing to evolve. You work at a general population level through your the training plan and all that work. I can just log in as a middle-aged guy and train. You, you're still having your laboratory in this high-performance environment. How do you continue to synthesize practitioner, Chinese thinking around the body, your judo, the evolution of CrossFit? It's really almost too much for my little pinche brain to sort of integrate and synthesize all that into a cogent whole. How do you do it? I think for me... What I realized early on when I was like trying to learn, whether it was at osteopathy school and reading books around osteopathy and other topics, or then afterwards doing courses and thinking about things for myself, I kind of realized that if every time I learn something new, I throw everything old away, I'll never get anywhere. So I started to think in frameworks. I started to develop some kind of a basic framework for myself of understanding how humans work, how both on an emotional level, psychological level, but also in high performance and I started to build this framework for myself. And maybe it is still like a more implicit than explicit model, but I always would see how new information fits into that framework and which pieces fit and which pieces would be practical for me. Because all I kind of believe that all models are wrong, but some are useful, right? So I would always think of, okay, how are these models useful that I'm learning and always trying to reintegrate them back into this general framework that I had. So in the end, that I would have something that's a whole and not all these little pieces that will be very difficult to put together. What do you think you got? Let's just say if we started your coaching of the nascent sport of CrossFit and these young superstars who are, we don't know how much volume can, people can handle, we don't know the skills, we don't know how much better we can get. What do you think you had the most wrong back then that you could go back and be like, <laughs> whoa, you know, sweet potatoes in the middle of Fran was less good. I mean, like, where did we get, what, what do you think were some of our biggest errors <laughs> you know, back in the day? I think back in the day, I'm going to start by saying that the good thing was that we were starting to understand movement and we were heavily investing in that. And I think that's good. But if I could train, mm. you know, 2010 CrossFit Games athletes now with what I know, I'm sorry, but you would not stand a chance against us. I mean, it's just the reality how the sport has <laughs> evolved. You know, I wish I would know what I know now about the brain, about its role in performance. But I think it's, I think it's like a, there's a little frustration in that the, all the knowledge was available in 2010, but it took all these years to put it together, and I'm still in that process. I think that what we could have done better at the beginning is not to rely on CrossFit as the unique training methodology, but to understand that other sports have done great things in the past, and they've really thought deeply about things like how to get strong, how to improve your mobility, how to develop skill and coordination. Integrating that knowledge early on, I think would have been very beneficial because when I started, I was very much in that like CrossFit kind of dogma world that it was back in the day, especially, you know, everything else sucks, you know, whereas now look, just last week, Catherine was at the Clobo gym doing bodybuilding, two sessions, you know, one lower body, one upper body with a very specific purpose and choice of movements. 
But, you know, that integration of knowledge from all different fields just wasn't there yet. And I think that's the biggest mistake that we made at the beginning of not appreciating what people already knew. So I have a question just for people who aren't uh, coaches of high-level games athletes. How do you fit in all of the training and make sure you've checked all the boxes? And because it is such a diverse sport and, you know, you might be paddling or running or lifting the heaviest weights known to man or, I mean, it really is the amount of skill and proficiency that these athletes have to have is kind of unimaginable. And how as a coach do you even choose and do you now, after doing it for this many years, feel pretty confident that you have a method? I'm sure you're always iterating on how much running and endurance type training and strength training versus like sheer CrossFit training. I mean, how do you figure out how to balance all that? And then when do you bring in experts like running experts or in this case, bodybuilding people? Or mm-hmm. how, how do you know when to integrate that as well? Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. So basically, I think that one thing we have to recognize that this traditional periodization of training structuring models are very difficult to apply because there's just not simply enough time. So I've been for, I want to say since 2014, actually one of the most influential books for me in coaching was this uh, book called Pragmatic Programming, which is a software development book that talks about the agile development. That was kind of the beginning that they had. These were the people who had the agile manifesto of how to develop software. And uh, one of the things in that world is this idea of minimum viable products. You know, what's an MVP? And I think about what's the minimum viable program. It needs to have certain elements in it that are at the core of our sport and at the core of athletic training, and they need to be covered first. And once those things are covered, so let's say that if you want to get better at squatting, you probably need to squat at some point. And if you're going to have snatch and clean and jerk in a part of the sport, you probably have to do them on a regular interval. So more highly skilled movements, you need to have more frequency, less skilled movements. You might still need the times have more frequency, sometimes less. But it becomes this triage basically of, okay, what is the MVP? What is the minimum viable program? That means that I'm not going to at least be wrong. And once I've done that, it's a little bit like um, thinking of Nassim Taleb's like barbell strategy, thinking of like, okay, I have this one side. I'm not wrong. Now I can play some bets and try to be right. But the beginning for me, the philosophy is I try not to be wrong with the athletes. So I ensure that they're making progress in the right direction. And then I take some calculated risks based on what I think that they need versus working on the endurance solely for 12 weeks. And then maybe we got really far away from sports performance and we might never find our way back. You know, so it's really about having these. By the way, no one has ever said Nassim Taleb and barbell training. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was amazing. Yeah. Okay, so here's what I'm wondering. Mm. Have you ever been sitting there at the games and a workout or program is announced and you in your mind, I know you would never let your athletes know, but are you? have you ever had a moment in your mind where you're like, oh shit, we never practiced that? I just tried. Or do you feel like you're like, uh, they have, my athletes have let, such good Let me good jump in and skills. say that Yami was the first person ever to look at the open workouts and say there are only X number of movements in here. And he was so pragmatic. I'm yeah, wrong. I mean, I know you're the you, first person to say, well, there's only this many permutations of things we're actually going to see. So let's just focus yeah, and on so, you know, And I know you are so tactical and so thoughtful. So maybe you've never had that moment. I'm just sort of wondering, like, you know, inside the mind of Yami, have you ever been like, oh, dear God, we never practiced that? Yeah. yeah yes and no. I mean, yes, there's been moments when it's like, oh, no, I, you know, when the prone paddleboard thing came up first time, it would have been great <laughs> to have done surf rescue for 10 years before that. But 
<laughs> you, you know, like, like Kelly was saying, there is a limited pool of movements that typically show up in a CrossFit competition that form like a model for the sport. And then there are unknowns. And you, you know that there are unknowns that you can't even predict. So that means that you want to have athletes who are adaptable. And that's one of the goals of training is to make the athletes resilient and adaptable, not just good at the movements that they do, but they need to have enough experiences outside the sport that whatever happens at the games, they will be at least able to perform. And I oftentimes say to the athletes, like, you know, the distance from zero to one is infinite. Like you, it's like, if you've done something at least once, you have a huge advantage against people who've never tried it, both mentally and physically. So we try, especially leading up to games, we try to have this really big breath of things that we do just in case. And we maybe just do one exposure. So when the time comes and there is something that we couldn't predict, there is like, oh no, but there is at the same time, it's like, yeah, but these guys are adaptable. It'll be fine. Like I'm not stressed about that. And it's also all- Yeah, that's a really, adaptation is a really good way to look at it. Yeah. We see, um, I've been around long enough in enough sports and enough environments when something special starts to happen in a location, it feels- like there's a generation of gravity, a specific gravity that starts to aggregate. Something special is happening. And I feel like right there in Iceland, something special is happening. You were a remote journey person coach for a long time. You didn't have a route. You had a flat in, in London that you would, you know, you'd keep some stuff in. <laughs> Definitely you were there yeah. a little bit more in the in the pandemic. But this is the first time you've really anchored down. Do you feel like that's been a change in your approach because you're so much have so much more in contact time and not to in, uh, insinuate that you don't spend a freakish amount of time with your athletes even when you were remote you would send me a picture like here's my cabin in the woods of you know some obscure oh, yeah, field isolation I've seen yeah. where you've been over the, the past decades that's right the yeah. isolation cabin yeah. but do you feel like one something special is happening and two how does that feel to feel like you have an anchor where people are sitting to you're starting to drag people in like Katrin is back at home in Iceland and you've got, you know, you're pulling in Americans there. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think what feels really good, like, yes, there is something special happening and there is energy. And I think a lot of people have made the decision to uproot their lives and to be here for this season and, you know, and building from this. So I think that the commitments that I have both as a coach, you know, the, the reason that I'm in Iceland is to coach these athletes. The reason that the team is in Iceland is to be the best athletes they can be, to be the best team they can be, and to win the CrossFit Games. Katrin moved back in here. I mean, Björkvin obviously has been here for a long time, but I think everyone's so committed. You know, there is this sense of we are here with purpose, and there is this is meaningful to be here right now, and there are sacrifices that are being made. And that's recognized, but they are also not sacrifices because the goal is going to be worth it. And I think that's what brings the energy in here right now. Yeah, absolutely. So can you just sort of tell all of the listeners, who do you have there on your roster and sort of who are they and what are you excited about each of them and, and their group capability? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously on an individual level, we have Pjörkvin and Katrin who, you know, multiple time, whether it's the multiple time fittest woman on earth or multiple time podium finisher, Mr. Consistency at the CrossFit Games, Pjörkvin, them to be in the same place and training together, integrated with the team, just means that even though they're both very capable of pushing themselves alone, there is a special energy. We did some intervals today that were brutal, and you can just see that no one's willing to give an inch. So if we need to create an environment where people push, that's very much available right now. And then we have this 
great team of athletes with Tom Potter, who is a freakish machine of a human being. Like his output on the machines, his aerobic, pure aerobic capacity, it's insane. It's I've never seen anything like that. And then we have Tola Morakinho, who, you know, just casually did a touch and go snatch double at 130 today, kilos. So that was nice. And he just has that. <laughs> Capacity casually. No big deal. Yeah. And he's super committed to movement. You know, he he moves beautifully and he really invests so much in taking care of his body. He brings a different energy than Khan. And then we have Lauren Fisher, who has so much experience in this sport and is such a capable athlete. When she did, I mean, she, you know, pulled a double at 160 today from the floor or to, to yesterday or last week. And it was so easy. It was like, I was like, wow, she could have deadlifted 185 kilos that day so easily. And she's such a small human being and the power and the capacity there, again, incredible. And then we, of course, have Annie who, you know, I think everyone who's followed CrossFit or hasn't followed CrossFit probably knows of her. She's really the beginning of CrossFit in Iceland as well. So just her presence at the gym and the work ethic that she brings, I think, again, like just this energy of like all these people coming together in a sense, you know, around Annie and me in, in, in one sense, but then bringing all their personalities and bringing all their physical capabilities, it's really like, it, it's like just talking about it gets me a little excited. I was just talking to a WNBA star, superstar, Hall of Famer, who's working with a team and just feels like culture is so much, especially if we're going to really go far. I mean, you can just, you know, you, like you say, there's easy to push, there's you know, what's happening? We've seen uh, what Rachel has been, Rachel Balkovec has been doing with culture on her team from the, you know, from creating the competitive culture and giving people a chance to compete every day. One of the things that I think people struggle with from a team sport environment is oftentimes they don't have a history of leadership of people who've been around a long time showing the next generation what's up. And suddenly I feel like you are sort of surrounded by an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> Do you find that you have? everyone there has had enough success that there is a feeling that has changed a little bit. It's not sort of a, you know, scarcity model, but a, a real abundancy model. And that allows you to, everyone to sort of really progress further. Has, has that been your experience? Because that's what it feels like from looking from the outside, but maybe I'm reading that wrong. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And I, I, in some ways I would say there is no competition. No one is competing against each other about getting better. Everyone wants to support each other and everyone wants to grow and be better. But when it comes to three, two, one, go, and we do the work, everybody wants to beat each other at the same time. So there is this really beautiful relationship where we are sharing information freely, we're helping each other out. But when it's game time, we also go as hard as we can, even in the team, like the guys versus the girls. So if you have a partner thing, they all try to beat each other, you know? And so it's just kind of a beautiful environment where you get to have the both the benefit of competition, but also of the teamwork and camaraderie coming together. So yeah, no, I, I think you see it's exactly as it is. Is there any part of it that feels extra awesome to have everybody together doing this at this time after all this COVID isolation and people not being together? I mean, do you think that sort of heightens the pure joy that everyone's experiencing doing this? Yeah. I mean, I can speak for myself. Being in London during COVID, I mean, with the lockdowns we had, you could go out for 30 minutes a day to exercise and it was really, really rough. So I think that there was this moment of everyone being a little bit isolated and then now being able to be surrounded by so many people and not just people, but like really awesome people, you know, there's a very different vibe when everyone around you is just every day, just 
all in. I want to get better. And we have tough days, we have easy days, but it doesn't matter. I think that energy is something that during the COVID, at least for me, that was missing of not being able to be with the athletes in person. And yeah, it's like, I think that that contrast makes it feel even better. And the unfettered access to uh, fermented Icelandic well meat. horse milk. Well meat. Yeah, and well meat. I think that probably isn't. That's probably, yeah, yeah, that makes you a little stronger. Yeah. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit, Yami, and ask you to tell us a little bit about the pro-inflammation tour. Whoa, so, whoa, 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 whoa. What happens on the pro-inflammation tour? I mean, I just wanted to leave stays that. Stays on the pro-inflammation I just wanted to leave that as an open-ended question. I wasn't going to tee it up at all. I just... You know, I wanted Yami to tell what he felt comfortable telling about the pro-inflammation tour. That was 10 years ago. Wow. Well, it was an important part of your life. It, it was an important moment. And an important part of Yami's ill health. Yeah. I realized, <laughs> so I dislocated my finger doing judo some years back, 15 years back, maybe a little bit more. And I thought I was fully healed. You know, it took a long time to gain full range of motion in that finger. And then Kelly comes to Europe. <laughs> We go see a couple sports teams, maybe teach a couple seminars. And then all of a sudden, this thing just creeps up. My finger stops moving full range of motion. There is just this little chronic inflammation that just reappeared its face. So that was the pro-inflammation. I may or may not have pulled... What do you think... Uh, I may or may not have pulled my quad in... in uh, <laughs> trying to like power clean a heavy uh, single after a long course. And maybe or maybe not, there was iron brew involved, I what, think. What do you yeah. think was the cause of that? creeping inflammation uh i think it was uh all, all, i mean either one of you either one of you can answer that i think it was the greens powder that we had it was just bad greens powder that they gave us no <laughs> <laughs> just just so everyone knows basically yam and i were like look we have an, an unreasonable amount of work and we're going to be in six countries in like four days and uh <laughs> the work travel rest we had one day off in london and that was when we went and worked with like arsenal that was our day off i think and uh you and I were committed to eating all the pastry that we could. I think that was yes. like, how much pastry can we get down? And waffles, right? There were a lot of waffles And there might have been involved. some red wine and waffles and pastry. But we were literally like, you know, we have nothing to lose in this except our finger range of motion. And <laughs> and, and your hamstring. And we, di and we, didn't, um, we didn't sleep much either. No. And uh, there was a person who was uh, working with Yami at our gym at the time, doing some assistance work for the train plan. And she ratted this out to you, if you recall, because she was like, well, I just got an email from Yami and it's three in the morning there and they just got home. And, uh, you know, I'm just saying that. Yeah, didn't you guys go to like a, a show in, in Paris and then pass out? We may have gone to uh, some cabaret in Paris and I may have fallen asleep in cabaret. I was so exhausted because that's what happens when you go to a cabaret show. You have to catch up, power nap. Yeah, anyway, the point is that Yami and I have been together a long time. Yami, that was the first time I'd had athletic greens, so thank you for that. That was when I was like, oh, I'm going to pretend to do That's something good for me. I was actually just, we were just with the founder of Athletic Greens in Austin, and I told him that story of how basically... You guys you, ate waffles and athletic greens for three weeks? <laughs> and you you kept me alive with that. You're like, Kelly, we're going to do yeah. this one thing. We're going to drink some water and eat athletic greens first thing in the morning. Yeah, it's like you have um, to have an anchor. Coaches... Yeah. <laughs> you have to have you have to have one good habit in your seed, day, a single a one. Cloud crystal, you and I, um, you know, uh, you've been progressing, evolving, integrating, iterating for as long as I've known you. I feel like you were the first person who was like, "You need to get on this HRV." We we were playing around with some very early HRV tech. You have been sort of on trying to understand 
how humans are adapting, what's going on. I would have to lay down in the room and put the yeah, wait, wait, electrodes got, on my head. Can I tell that story? Can I tell that story? So, so this you, is Yami's fault, by the way. Yeah, so Yami's like, Kelly, Kelly, there's this like really cool HRV thing. And, you know, the technology's not quite there. So I don't know how you got us one. And then every morning we'd wake up and our kids at this time are like four and seven. And Kelly would wake up and then be, excuse me, I have to go lay in the guest room and plug myself into these 47 leads and then lay here for 20 minutes while it calculates my heart rate variability. And after like two days, I was like, yeah, hell no. I was like, you need to come out here and help me get our kids ready for school. But Yami, but Yami, but Yami's going to upset with me. Sorry, Kelly, I thought that plan would work for longer. What? (laughs) (laughs) He got like like two days out of it, Yami, before I was like. What are you thinking about as a coach these days where you think the greatest opportunities are for coaches and even for you as a coach personally? Because we... Coaches are drowning in metrics, drowning in data, drowning in in methodology. What is essential and where are you sort of putting your awareness into your own personal development right now? I think what's once you have the basic skills of coaching, I think one thing that's essential, if we think about all this HRV technology that's around, whether it's Omega Wave back in the day, they're still around, or like something like Whoop. What's important is to, if you have technology, I think it's, it always should be a conversation starter with the human being. The classic thing is like you look someone in the eye and you ask, can you go? Are you ready to go? That's the, all the information that you need in some ways about their readiness. But when you have these metrics, you can approach that conversation and be informed. So we, for example, track, you know, we use Swoop for the team. It's very easy because they don't need to do anything. So when I go see them in the morning, I already know how they slept. I already know what their resting heart rate or HRV was. So I can go and have the conversation. I can read their body language. So there is this like this marriage of you know interpersonal skills and the ability to read humans, and then using technology. So from that perspective, I think that whatever technology you use, whether it's tracking recovery or something else, you need to think about the human and how you integrate it into a practice where where it's about that person. Because it always should be a communication and not hey you can't train today because this was red or orange or whatever color it was. So I think that's really important uh, to remember. And I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning. It goes back into frameworks. You have to understand what your framework is, what your approach is, like where do you start? What are the principles for you? And building those principles and understanding the communication of those principles to your athletes, I think is so much more significant than any of the technology that we have because without it, it's just this thing that doesn't lead to any action. And then it's just one more thing that the athlete wears or does or and, and there's no meaning to it. So I think that's that's the most important thing is take the time to build a framework for yourself and then hang things into that framework. Now, I, so, I want to hear the follow-up. Where are you personally putting your energy into becoming and bringing it? If you're asking these athletes to continue to evolve, mm-hmm. I mean, the sophistication of Annie now as an athlete or any of these athletes, Katrin, you know, I remember just hanging around Katrin where she's a goofy young athlete who hadn't even won the games yet. And now she's just like a shark, mm-hmm. you know, on rails with laser beams. Where are you in, and what are you thinking about in terms of bringing new skills and awareness? And are they more on the interpersonal side? They are partially, although I feel like at this point, if I feel like I need to go and search for something more, I will. But I realize that when I'm having conversations with athletes, I have multiple levels in my mind already thinking about the outcomes mm. for them. So it's always honest conversation, but I'm trying to think what do they need right now for them to be successful in this moment because the, every session builds towards their goals. But if I think about what I'm trying to understand better, it's a, a definitely this continuous pursuit of trying to understand the role of the brain in human performance and 
how we can leverage, how we can interface. I love that you talked about this analogy about the iPad in before. It's like you don't need to understand the technology behind the iPad to use the iPad and swipe it. But if you don't know how to open the iPad, it's very difficult. So trying to understand how you can swipe the iPad open and get the face recognition so you can do what you want is really, for me, is understanding applied neuroscience and neurology with the athletes. Use that as an interpretation tool, understanding their movement, and then also finding ways to solve problems in like you know very strange ways at times. I think that's something that's very interesting for me. And I, I look at movements through the biomechanical analysis, but then I try to look at it through what might be going on in that nervous system. And that's a continuously challenging field to grow in. I agree with that. I feel like what's happening right now is that people get into this neuroathletic, you know, neurobiology, neurology approach and they stop lifting weights or they stop. It's all of that. It's all prime trying to understand without the go. And it's really the interface that matters so much. Yes, absolutely. That integration, like, and again, like not discarding what you already know because you learned something new. I think that's really the essential thing here. Could you give us an example of what you're talking about? Just because I think I, I have an understanding of what you're saying. But maybe uh, my wife, who just likes to exercise and, and be shredded, and she woke up with abs one day just without even trying, maybe doesn't understand. But I think a simple... A sim <laughs> Hashtag jelly. <laughs> a simple example, so to speak. It could be someone that... I watched someone squat. I was snatched. Maybe it's more obvious there, but let's take a simpler movement. So someone's squatting. And as they're squatting, I see their head is bopping forward and backwards. I'm going to start with the premise that every movement has a purpose. What are they trying to do? What is their brain asking for? What kind of input? Is it asking mm. for? And I can see that there is some kind of a midline stability issue if I add the, the head and neck into it, which draws my attention to structures that kind of function together with that system, which could be the spine, it could be the cerebellum, it could be the eye movements. And then I'm going to start to break it down from that perspective. I might give them a simple drill of look in the distance, bounce in place 10 times. This happened just today with Lauren. She had bad balance. She was doing a snatch. I said, hey, I want you to look there in the distance. Look at that point. Good. Can you see it clearly? Yes. Bounce. Keep it clear. Good. Now go snatch straight away. And it was better. And of course, some of it is pattern recognition. And part of it is like it could have also not been the stimulus that she needed. But it's trying to learn those patterns, you know, trying to see what's going on. Do a couple interpretive tests and then do an application and be okay if you're wrong. And create a culture where the athletes are also okay if you're wrong. Because when you do weird stuff, it's like it's, it's really important that you trust yourself as a coach enough that if it looks a little crazy and it didn't work, that you don't give up because that could also be could be very easy. <laughs> so I feel like the theme of this podcast is integration, by the way. But so I have, because my brain thinks in like operations and logistics, how do you prepare yourself as an individual to go into the CrossFit Games? Because I know every year you're trying to manage so many athletes and the logistics around that and everybody's you know physical and emotional needs. And do you just basically put like the needs of Yami to the side and drink a cup of athletic greens in the morning and hope for the best? Or, you know, how do you manage the logistics of what I know is an epic couple of weeks for you around the games in particular? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, my uh, strength numbers go down <laughs> during a specific time of the year. <laughs> um, now, I would say this. <laughs> I, I think that it is extremely important to take care of yourself. But I think one of the things that's allowed me to be as dedicated as I have been to the athletes is that I have a lot of resilience in that moment when I feel like it's meaningful enough that I can sleep on the floor, I can choose not to sleep, I can wake up first, I can do that for a while 
as long as I know that after that period, I get to get some rest. And typically after games, I don't see the athletes for a month. And I think that's, that's a good thing, you know, and I need that. But that being said, you know, I try to make sure for my own training, the important things for me are, you know, doing a lot of zone two work, doing a lot of aerobic base, make sure that I have energy, be strong enough, you know, do a lot of strength work. And then on top of that, I really like going and doing some um, classes. Yeah, they have a great community at the gym. So I just love jumping in two, three times a week, just doing a class. And that's enough high intensity for me. So I, it's building my own training in a way that I'm never in a rush anywhere. If I don't feel like it today, I can rest. I can be intuitive with the training. I can auto-regulate. And if I feel like I can go, then I also can choose to go because I don't need to be ready at a given date. I just need to make sure that my baseline is high enough that I can handle whatever the you know the season throws at me. That is some of the best advice I've ever heard for coaches who really struggle. We, because we work in so many universities, we there is a culture even in the professionals. There's you know leagues like the NFL. There's a culture of coach burnout, and coaches are not healthy. They look like crap. They move like crap. They're stressed. Their nutrition is terrible. I really appreciate you saying sort of that and really creating space for that. that you know, that if mom ain't right, nobody right. Um, yeah. Do you have a certain eating style yourself? I mean, I've, again, I have shared a, quite a few meals with you in the desert and other places. You know, wh what are your sort of default mm -hmm. strategies? Is it just pastry and red wine when you're your most stress, stressed self? Or do you, uh, do you take care of something else or think differently. I alternate between pain au chocolat and croissant beurre. <laughs> no. I, you, know, croissant beurre. you know, I try to um, make sure that I have breakfast. I think that's extremely important. And my two go-to choices is either I have some eggs, hopefully some greens on the side, but if it's just eggs, that's okay for me in the morning. Or I make like a protein shake in the morning and then that's a lot of green stuff that goes in that shake. So I try to have that as a stable for me. And I think that's really important is to have a good starting point for the day. And then, you know, we are lucky here. We have a great restaurant where you can get great, like a lunch bowl every day. It just makes life so easy. And I, I just basically, I can eat the same food every day for eternity. I'm okay. So I do that. And then, you know, basically I make sure that I have three good meals a day and you know, I try to make good decisions as much as I can. And I definitely am human and I go through phases where those decisions are not as good as they could be. But the baseline is, you know, if somebody would ask, what do you eat? I'd say, oh, I'm plant-based. That doesn't mean I'm vegan or vegetarian. I just try to eat as many plants as I can. And then I top that off with some delicious protein, you know? It's like the Michael Pollan quote from his book. It's like, eat food, mostly plants. Yeah. Exactly. Done. Yeah, that's or, it. Or, or uh, this will offend all the people out there. We're like, be a vegan plus all the protein you can choke down. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly and I, people ask, what's your diet? We're like, vegan plus meat. <laughs> it's very confusing. So Yami, what, obviously you have the games coming up, so you could talk about that, but sort of what are you looking for? What are you looking forward to in sort of short-term, long-term Yami life? I mean, this season, obviously we have set some really big goals, both with individual athletes and then with the team. You know, anyone who follows CrossFit space knows that, you know, CrossFit Mayhem is probably a pretty good team at this point that they're gelled together and we're trying to take them and everyone else down at the games to be the best team in the world. That's not a small goal. It takes a lot. So, so right now I'm very focused on this season. But I think beyond this season, you know, what I'm excited about is, is spending more time in Iceland, getting to really develop coaching and develop the athletes in here longer term. It's a great environment. Uh, it's a beautiful country and there's great people in here. So I'm really looking forward to uh, 
taking more time in here and see what we can put together over not just this season, but over the coming seasons as well. Aquavit, yes or no? Sometimes. Sometimes, all right. <laughs> it's a really strange uh, liquor from the from the, the Norwegian Icelandic uh, communities. One of the things that you do every year with one of your old best friends, you go have a really crazy adventure. You guys backpack around, or you ice, you you mountain bike around volcanoes, or you do you go out into the woods and you canoe a hundred miles. What are you guys doing this year? Because I love that you always have this thing at the end of your competitive season. You're like, holy crap, Yami has to go sort of live the uh, the life and and accomplish a task. What are you thinking about this year for your big? person trip. Yeah, I mean trying just try not to be a domesticated human. I think that's really the main reason for these trips. And you know, one of the things that we've been talking about this year is not quite nailed down yet, but uh pack rafting would be quite interesting. I read this um Oh yes. That this We have a, we have a um we have a lot of thoughts on that, oh. Yummy, and advice on pack rafts. I think that's a great I idea. Think we, we spend a lot of our free time shopping for pack rafts. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I, I read this I read this PDF these guys did some crazy self-supported trip through Alaska like most remote location where you can pretty much go in, on planet Earth. And they did some pack rafting there. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So that's compelling. <laughs> some kind of a pack rafting thing. The other plan that's been going on for many years is the COVID kind of ruined the plan is to just take a helicopter, get dropped somewhere in Norway and come back. That's it. I've seen that TV show. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's run by Joe Decina. Yeah, and you get, to, Joe, uh, Joe oh, really? thing. You get to eat fermented, rotting uh, yak carcass. It's going to be great. <laughs> Yami, where you have you are, you have been creating content and programming, and your site is incredible. Where can people follow what you're doing, and even just follow along? Yeah, with and follow your team. The shenanigans, and, yeah. of what were you, what you all are building together in this collaboration that you have with all these amazing athletes. Where can people find that? OnlyFans. No, uh, they should not go to OnlyFans. <laughs> they should go to the trainingplan.co. They can go to trainingplan.com. It takes them to trainingplan.co slightly confusingly we are also obviously on instagram and all the social platforms that's the the training plan yeah i recommend definitely come and check it out see if it's for you it's not for everyone i mean the approach that we take is try to be systematic about making progress and that's not suitable for everyone some people like to things to change all the time but that does typically does not lead to a lot of progress so we like to be systematic and that means that it's just not everybody's cup of tea but if you're interested, you should try. And what is your uh, your home gym location? What is that place? So right now, it's uh, I'm actually in the office here. It's uh, CrossFit Reykjavik in Iceland. It's a fantastic gym, great community. Definitely recommend anyone who's dropping by to come, you know, in Iceland to come by. Amazing. Yami, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's so fun to see you. Such Can't wait to hug it out. This is the longest I have been without a Yami sighting I know. in like 15 years. It's that, that's how long it's been, my friend. We have to make it happen. Such a pleasure to see Too you long. guys. Good to see you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.